Welcome to Ontario Lab, a podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff, recorded right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Alexi White. And I'm Alvin Tejo. Today, we will look at why Doug Ford's Greenbelt Council has lost an awful lot of members in the past few days. Uh, then we have an update on uh, the Premier's slipping poll numbers and how the pandemic may have shaped public opinion over the last year. Uh, we'll be talking about the Long-Term Care Commission's letter that came out last Friday and a new jobs report that shows labor market growth continuing to slow in November, something the government appears to be slightly worried about, but also trying to put a good face on. So uh, lots going on today. How's everyone doing this week? Great. Yeah. Yeah, excited good. for the holiday season. I, I want you guys to know that I started watching The Crown like four years after starting watching The Crown was cool <laughs> this week. And uh, I almost wanted to slip in a thoughts on the monarchy section of this pod because like I have more of them now than I've ever had before. You started on season one or you're getting caught up on season four? I started on season one. <laughs> so I've never seen The Crown at all. Well, I spent most of my weekend writing Christmas cards. So if you want one... Uh, Find my tweet or Facebook post where I ask you to give me your uh, address. Otherwise, you're not going to get one. And if everybody listening to the pod could please go and spam that um, <laughs> list with all kinds of ridiculous fake addresses, I'd really appreciate it because, Alvin, you deserve it for putting it out publicly. We got, they were all legit. So far, they're all legit, I think. <laughs> you think i have uh they're all just versions of me because I, I i love the christmas card it's a cool it's it's always a good christmas card i'm always like super impressed by the like do you like get a photographer to come in and take photos of your family yeah. like it's like always like the best family photo i've ever seen in my life i will say i think this year's 2020s tejo christmas card i think will be the best that we've ever done in 10 Are years you all wearing masks no but oh. we're all together not modeling good public uh this is like can't we be were very distant from anyone else who was in that space. So anyway, you'll see it. Could, could do a Barack Obama and just have yourself all getting the vaccines next year to like promote public safety. Yeah, exactly. It'll be my wife because she's a nurse. So she'll be the one giving it to us. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, maybe diving into the news. Uh, on Saturday, David Crombie, former federal progressive conservative cabinet minister and former mayor of Toronto, uh, resigned as the chair of Ontario's Greenbelt Council. Uh, the next day, six other members of the Greenbelt Council also resigned. Uh, at the center of these mass resignations are concerns that Schedule 6 of a recently tabled budget bill uh, by the uh, Doug Ford's conservative government would strip power from local conservation authorities and expand ministerial authority on zoning and other potentially sensitive environmental issues. For example, the changes would force conservation authorities to issue permits um, for development approved under a ministerial zoning order, uh, even if it would cause, cause flooding, erosion, or other negative environmental impacts, or could even affect public safety. Uh, in his resignation letter, Crombie says that the council tried to convince Municipal Affairs Minister Steve Clark to remove Schedule 6, but to no avail. Uh, and the legislature is expected to pass the bill today on Monday, which is the day that we're recording this. The pod, of course, comes out on Tuesday. So it might already be law by the time you are hearing this. So um, it's a, it was a bit of a flare up that happened over the weekend. Um, even actually after we'd written the guides, it was we, you know, uh, I think all learned about this sort of late Saturday night. So Alvin, uh, what did Crombie say in his resignation letter? So I think it's important to remind everybody and listeners who David Crombie is. Not only was he the chair of this Greenbelt Council, he is also a former mayor of Toronto. He is also a former 
uh, progressive conservative cabinet member. He is a member of the Order of Canada, the Order of Ontario, still a member of the Privy Council, obviously, because that's a lifetime appointment. Um, so he is not just any sort of run-of-the-mill chair of any of these particular organizations, not that there is one, but he obviously has strong bona fides within this space, within government, and within uh, the Progressive Conservative uh, Party itself. So he had some pretty strong language in his resignation letter, and it's really worth quoting him at length. Speaking specifically about Schedule 6, he said, it cuts out the heart of integrated watershed planning and management. Severely cripples the conservation authorities in the pursuit of their historic stewardship of environment issues. And now, with the grossly expanded use of minister zoning orders, or MZOs, and other procedural revisions, essential public discussions and demand will be stifled or shut down. He went on to say, This is not policy and institutional reform. This is high level bombing and needs to be resisted. So that's wild to me. You like you almost never see in an intergovernmental communication this needs to be resisted. Uh, and it's very rare, I think, that you see government officials sort of resign officially uh, in protest, particularly you know, in nonpartisan um, councils and things like this that are you know typically government appointees. So that's really strong language. How's the government responding to this uh, in the sort of two days they've had to? So late on Sunday, Minister um, Steve Clark, Municipal for Municipal Affairs, he isn't disputing what Schedule 6 will do. Instead, he says uh, it doesn't really apply to the Greenbelt, so why worry about it? But also you need to see in the statement that he released on Twitter is the tone of the government's response. He basically threw... Um, through Crombie under the bus and the current council and everyone who's resigning by saying, well, your term was up anyway, and we were already looking for your replacement. I mean, like, why say that shit if you're trying to essentially try and, um, you know, manage this crisis that is coming up from someone from your own party calling you out on basically being full of shit and uh, doing the opposite of what you were sort of hired to do? So, I mean, the star asked Crombie about this on Saturday night, and Crombie said, to say that you're not touching the green belt means you don't understand watershed planning, land use planning, and what conversation conservation authorities have been doing for the past 30 years. So Crombie's, you know, he's he's not stepping down from this. And what's interesting is that just a few months ago, when another member of the council stepped down and resigned in protest, um, the chair, Crombie, was asked, you know, what do you feel about that? And he stood by the government. He said, you know, this is a this is a process. We're going through the process. You'll have the answers. And for him to essentially elevate to this point, that's a big deal. And people need to understand that this is a whistleblower, essentially, from within this government, from within this party, who is saying, you know, this this cannot stand. You, If you believe in any sort of the conservation and protection of the green belt and the environment here uh, in Ontario, then you need to fight this. But we also knew that Doug Ford and his government was going to do this type of shit, right? Like he was caught as red-handed as any politician could get caught at a fundraiser with developers on camera saying that we're going to open the green belt. It's going to be a beautiful open green belt for you developers. And, you know, we're the best party for developers and all that other shit. And then he had to like walk it back because it was in the middle of the election. But I, yeah. you know, raved about this while I was running in Oakville, North Burlington, because the green belt's a big part of that riding. And, you know, people in and around the green belt, they understand the importance of it. 
And Doug has turned this into, you know, a political football. It's not about the environment. It's about raising money. It's about, you know, supporting developers. And it's about finding a way to circumvent the system that he created in order to get what he wants. So I don't really have a question to follow up with <laughs> other than, <laughs> you know, this is some royal bullshit happening here coming from the government being called out by their own people. And, you know, people should be upset about this. People should know what's going on. Yeah, I'm I'm upset with about it for sure. I, I agree with everything Alvin said. Uh, it's it's too bad that with COVID and everything else going on that these kinds of issues are not getting the attention that they would uh, prior to the pandemic. And this is a, an example of, and we'll come to this when we talk about polling, but it's the, uh, the Doug Ford government continues to do all kinds of terrible things that otherwise would have been magnified by the media and are uh, probably going to slip past most people's uh, attention because their attention is locked elsewhere. And, and that I think is a big reason why his popularity um, has uh, has increased uh, because nobody's paying attention to all this uh, bullshit that they're pulling on the sides. Uh, and this is not new, as you said, Alvin. I mean, the ministerial zoning orders alone, there have been uh, a huge increase in those. Uh, if you want to know more about MZOs, uh, check out our, we just did an episode last week where we interviewed uh, Corey Preston about the role of the Minister of Municipal Affairs. So you can learn all about that uh, from our pod last week. Uh, these are used sparingly in situations, uh, supposed to be in very limited situations where there's a need to uh, make a quick uh, decision that overrules uh, local decision-making. But this government has shown that they're willing to intervene on behalf of developers uh, to overrule local planning um, basically all the time. So this is nothing new, and it's it's sad that it's come to this point. I just hope that the the public um, attention that this is bringing, these resignations are bringing, will force them to change their tune. I just don't hold much hope. Yeah, and the nature of the change leads me to think that they can maintain a position that they are fulfilling their promise not to touch the green belt by giving themselves the power, but then not using it or waiting for a while before they use it. But And one of the things that is true about when you develop land that can otherwise be used for farming, for you know, maintaining our water supply, which is like can be super important in, you know, the coming years we face global warming, you know, local food production is going to increase in importance to all of our survival. Once you build a Best Buy or a Walmart on a farm, a bit of farmland that like, you can't, you can't just go back, you can't get it back. And so it's really dangerous what they've opened up here. And yeah, I just, it's, it's really, really dismaying. And you hear Doug Ford make these really declarative statements. And it seemed really like he had kind of been like scared away from the green belt thing. And it's, I think a good lesson for those to say, like, you know, if, if Doug Ford says he is not going to do something, he might just come back in two years time and, and try it again when he thinks that you've forgotten. And it's really frustrating. But we also shouldn't like, we shouldn't forget that. It, I mean, Dave Crombie is, is part of the green belt uh, council, but this is much bigger than the green belt, right? Like this is uh, affecting all of the 30, yeah. 36, is it 34, conservation authorities across the province. So, I mean, he he's concerned about this because he is involved in the bigger picture uh, and the government is trying to make this about the green belt. And I think it's important that we not fall into that trap. I mean, this, this is about development everywhere in the province, making it easier to tilt the scales toward developers and away from environmental protection for everyone everywhere in Ontario. Yeah, that's a really, really good point because yeah, they, I mean, if they don't touch the green belt, but they open up a whole bunch of other places they are still technically fulfilling their promise not to touch the green belt but ontario is still fundamentally damaged uh by this um also just like to revisit one last point on this like i think 
and this was a trend in the liberal government too, but like the the trend towards giving ministers broader and broader unilateral powers is something that I think we pay, should pay attention to no matter who is in power or who is trying to do it because, you know, ministers are individual decision makers. The less that needs to get brought back to cabinet or the less that needs to get brought back to uh, the legislature, like these are massive decisions that will affect lots of people that can be basically made by one person. And even on top of this issue, I think that is something that, you know, we should be paying more attention to because who knows what kind of lobbying pressure Steve Clark or the next minister will be under. Um, You know, there's all kinds of stuff that gets opened up when you invest all this power into the hands of one person. It'll be really interesting to see where this lands Um, this week. I think it'll be ongoing. There was some sort of surprise press conference uh, on Monday uh, this week uh, about it. But, you know, we'll see who they replace the council with. I mean, is it going to be a bunch of yes people? <laughs> Probably is my guess. Uh, or maybe they'll fold yeah. it. I don't know. We'll we'll see what they end up uh, actually doing with this. And and if people are paying enough attention to to keep some pressure on it. Well, let's maybe uh, shift from, you know, the damage the Ford government is doing to the damage being done to the Ford government in the polls. We know that Doug Ford went from being the least popular premier in the country to a comparably popular premier to anyone else, uh, thanks to his early response to the pandemic. Uh, But a new poll from Angus Reid shows that this might be changing a bit. Um, And so, Alvin, uh, you've looked at the report. Uh, Is our COVID honeymoon with Doug Ford over? Yes. Absolutely. The honeymoon is over. It's been dropping. You're regretting. We're very close to the, you know, uh, seven year itch point of this government now where we're totally regretting uh, getting getting hitched with uh, with Doug. And uh, I think, you know, there's been a lot uh, happening in the polls just in the last few months, uh, but he's essentially at his lowest point. There have been two polls that came out uh, in the last week. There was Angus Reid that came out last week that shows a 14 percent drop. Uh, in his approval rating to 55%, uh, excuse me, since last May. At his high point, he was at almost at 70. Um, there was also a Leger poll, uh, or Leger poll that came out um, recently as well. And they do weekly tracking that has talked about how Doug Ford, uh, in, in, in his handling specifically of COVID, is now at the lowest point uh, during this entire pandemic. With near with over eighty something, I think he reached eighty five percent at one point in April and May, and he's now yeah. uh, just over sixty percent. Um, and every week it continues to go lower and lower. Um, so that's really interesting. So you know, all this um, uncertainty is certainly not helping the current government provincially. It seems to be holding relatively okay on the federal side. The numbers are not, you know considerably better, but they are better. They seem to be holding um, in terms of the confidence of Canadians that they are handling it. And provincial governments across the board seem at least nine, 10 points below the federal government on average, according to the Leger poll uh, that's been tracking uh, their support. So I find that really interesting. I think that um, based on some of these other polling numbers that Leger came out with around the concerns of people contracting COVID uh, having gone up contributes to that too. Uh, nearly two out of three Canadians are concerned about contracting COVID, especially during the break uh, that's coming up. That's back to the highest levels that it was during the first wave of the pandemic. Uh, one in four Canadians have indicated that they're not going to participate in holiday festivities. Nearly 60% of Canadians support a total ban on holiday gatherings across the country. 
uh, with Ontarians at 63%, which I find really interesting. And obviously, we're nowhere near that in terms of actual action from the provincial government with only, um, you know, lockdowns essentially in Toronto and Peel, um, and also not necessarily a total ban in terms of gatherings at all, even though they are strongly discouraged outside of your household. So, you know, I, I my speculation is that people are starting to see and get tired of sort of a, a middle of the road approach. I'm curious to hear what you guys have to think about that and whether or not um, we think that these uh, the provincial numbers being lower than the federal government's response has anything to do with, you know, these numbers necessarily going up in certain places, but also, um, you know, people sort of thinking the government needs to do more? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think on the margins, the individual provincial responses are obviously driving some of it. I mean, we see higher uh, support, particularly in, in the East Coast, where the COVID uh, situation has not been as uh, as difficult as some of the major provinces like Quebec and Ontario. At the same time, I mean, uh, the you know Quebec Premier Legault continues to have pretty high approval ratings still above where he was prior to the pandemic, but he started high. So, I mean, I think that the key thing to remember there is, I mean, he went into the pandemic with like 63% approval and he's basically back to where he was. Um, the, to me, I think the economy is a, a much bigger factor maybe than uh, the specifics handling of, of the COVID. Although of course those two things are, are linked, but you look at someone like uh, Premier Kenny in Alberta, his ratings have slipped. He was at 60% prior to the pandemic. Uh, or, well, more like, yeah, I guess closer to 50 by the time the pandemic started because he's already started slipping. He's now down to 40% in this Angus Reid poll. Um, and we know that Alberta also has the largest um, uh, unemployment rate, according to the latest unemployment numbers. Similarly, Manitoba, uh, Premier Pallister there has taken a nosedive between August and November. He dropped more than 10 points. He's down to 32% now. Uh, Manitoba has the second highest uh, unemployment rate. So I think the, you know, the economic impacts of COVID have been different across the country. And that seems to have, of course, a large impact on how much people uh, blame their their premier, which is not all that uh, unexpected. Uh, I'm a little less rosy, I think, than Alvin on uh, Doug Ford's honeymoon being fully over. I think for me, I'm uh, it might be too soon to tell. I, he came into this thing with such low approval ratings, and he's still way above where he was, say, in, in February uh, 2020, when he hit 31% in this Angus Reid tracker. He's at 55 now, so he's still 20 points over where he was at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, whereas a lot of other other premiers have come back down to earth and are closer to where they were when they started the pandemic. Um, so I think Ford has, still has to fall quite a long way to get back to the level of um, uh, frustration with his government that we saw heading in, which is, I'm hopeful that he will, obviously, uh, but um, uh, we'll have to see. Yeah, yeah. I found it hard in, in these numbers to pick apart what was a coming down to earth from, I think, what we saw across the country, which was a sort of a boosting of everyone's standings at, at the beginning of the COVID crisis. Um, and what is coming down to earth and a place that they're going to sustain and what where folks are going to keep dropping. Um, I mean, they're certainly trending I, in the wrong direction, right? They're all trending down. Too. And unless they are going to start doing things differently. I don't see that changing. Yeah, no, no. And like, I think that like, we probably haven't seen the bottom because 55% is still above the, 
you know, where we know the conservative support base in Ontario typically is, um, sort of in that high 30s range. And so, you know, there are still a number of voters who are saying that they approve of the premiers uh, who are outside of that traditional, like, super conservative base. And he still has a, a, a number of those. But it'll be interesting to see how the opinions of those voters change over the next couple months. Alexi, you said something really interesting earlier about how the economy links to this. And we actually just learned a little bit more about the state of the economy across the country and in Ontario. Um, so I want to turn maybe a little bit, maybe from the politics to the economy and some of the job numbers we got for November. Um, the province actually, I noticed this because the province actually took the step of putting out a press release of trying to put a happy face on the labor force survey results for Ontario. Uh, Vic Fidelli came out saying that this was the sixth straight month of uh, consecutive employment growth, um, very much a theme of the government's uh, the government's interventions are working. Uh, however, I think when placed in a larger context, the takeaways are a little bit more complicated than the rosy face the government uh, through Vic Fidelli might want to put on it. So, Alexi, how is the economy doing? Oh, man. Uh, yeah, complicated question. Um, I think the high level, it's definitely grim out there. The um, The real GDP is down 12.3% uh, in Ontario in the second quarter of this year, according to the budget that the PCs tabled recently. Uh, and that makes us um, slightly worse off than the rest of Canada as a whole uh, and sort of middle of the pack in the G7 with uh, countries like Japan doing much better, countries like the UK doing much worse, uh, although they have to deal with Brexit, which is a whole other fiasco. Um, unemployment mm -hmm. is way down from the high in May. So that's where you see the, the positive spin that you get from people like Fidelity with these like months and months of positive growth. Uh, but I mean, in the context of previous recessions, it's that's not as great a stat. So we're at 9.1% unemployment right now in Ontario, according to the latest labor force survey. That's only slightly better than the high of 9.6% that we hit at the height of the 2008 recession. So um, things are still pretty bad. Uh, the pace of improvement is also slowing, and that's what you alluded to, Chris. So a few months ago, we were posting 3% monthly increases in the job numbers. Uh, now we're posting a half a percent increase in November. So not a good sign if uh, we're hoping that the recovery is going to uh, continue at a pace and close that gap to pre-COVID employment uh, levels in the coming year. Um, the other thing to remember, of course, that we've heard time and time again, and it's a lesson we cannot forget, is that different people are feeling the impact of this COVID-induced recession uh, in different ways. So employment among women aged 25 to 54, which is obviously a key group, was unchanged in November. So they did not feel the benefit of these job increases. Uh, also, employment among Indigenous people living off reserve was unchanged in November. Uh, on a more hopeful note, employment among youth and visible minorities was up more than the other groups. So um, anyway, I mean, this is just one month, but uh, things to, to keep track of um, and make sure that we're thinking about these specific groups and how they've been impacted. Um, yeah, so that's kind of where the jobs are at. I think like what can get lost in sort of the dialogue about the vaccine and the public health measures and all of this is that what this has created is a recession of historic proportions. And I think some of what you outlined just said that, um, you know, what is maybe taking from some examples in previous recessions or, you know, like, what do we think based on the inputs here, the future hold, like how muddy is the outlook? What do we know? What do we not know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, really nobody knows what the future holds at this stage. The level of uncertainty in the, the modeling is is crazy. Like it's way above anything we've seen uh, in recent memory, at least. So, uh, for example, one of the stats that the um, the budget, Ontario budget used 
was this um, difference between the highest and lowest private sector forecast for Ontario GDP growth. So over the last 15 years, this has averaged about 0.7%. So that's kind of the, the, the split between the highest and lowest uh, forecasts. This year, um, in the Ontario budget, it was 2.4%, so over three times the typical variation. So uh, even in the private sector, uh, the modeling is all over the place. Um, and I mean, this is kind of why governments are publishing low, high, and medium growth scenarios, because uh, anything could happen in the future. Um, so the uh, most optimistic scenario for Ontario uh, had us returning to pre-COVID GDP levels next year, in 2021. The medium scenario, which they use for the fiscal planning, is basically just adds one year to that. So we get back to pre-COVID GDP around 2022. And then the most pessimistic scenario is quite a slow recovery. Uh, it would be at least 2024 or beyond before we hit uh, GDP levels that we were at prior to the pandemic. Um, consumer and business confidence uh, were up according to the budget. Um, so, I mean, that that's at least, I guess, uh, somewhat good. Um, and uh, that was also... Um, up before the second wave hit, so up to August. So we're not actually sure where those numbers are now yet. Um, manufacturing sales, retail sales, merchandise exports, and home real sales were also basically back to their pre-COVID levels as of August. So again, possibly good signs, but um, we don't know uh, what's going to happen with those with the second wave or if those numbers will hold. For sure. And I think you know, when we talk about variation of, you know, 0.7 versus 2.4% in budget, it's like really important that like folks know that for a government, that is like hundreds of millions of dollars of uncertainty of like money that you'll have to spend on programs and supports for people and not. So, um, and uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, really telling i think that they're building that kind of thing in it also i'm curious these high level numbers mask a lot of variation by sector and we know that some parts of the economy are struggling mightily arts transportation tourism restaurants uh but some industries and corporations are doing quite well during the pandemic um what is uh any insights into sort of how this sector variation will impact the larger picture yeah um it it, it seems right now there isn't enough data to have a clear sense of this but Pictures are starting to emerge, so we're seeing more and more really good journalism being done on the business side about uh, who is getting money from the government and what they're doing with that money, which I think is, is great, and we need much more of that. Um, CBC's been doing some of that into Air Canada recently. Um, there's been some data on how much Loblaws has, uh, has received from the government. Uh, and then there was this uh, very frustrating story in the Toronto Star uh, recently about Leon's and how they reported near-record profits in the second quarter of this year. Uh, so they received 30 million, almost 30 million in federal government aid because of the Canada emergency wage subsidy. Uh, and that encourages but does not compel companies to rehire laid off workers as a condition of receiving those funds. So um, according to their second quarter earnings release, Leon's uh, said if you exclude the government assistance, its net income would have been flat compared to last year. Uh, and instead, they got an extra $30 million windfall, basically. Uh, and they were able to hike their dividends and uh, buy back a whole bunch of shares, which helped to funnel money into the pockets of their shareholders and executives. So thanks, Leon's. <laughs> exactly the kind of thing that is going to give the public confidence uh, in, you know, public sector interventions uh, to support private sector businesses. I worry about the more these kinds of stories come out, the more we hear about folks misusing these kinds of things, the less confidence the public will have in government interventions to the private sector, which remain incredibly important. Yeah. It will make it harder for future politicians to sell the public on those things. Right. And and I mean, we remember early days in the pandemic, 
like even the liberals were saying to the conservatives provincially, you know, don't hesitate to act. We want you to do something and do the right thing and we'll deal with the consequences later. I think it's good that, you know, we're looking back now to make sure that retrospectively we can make sure that, you know, funds were spent properly. People are starting to get letters now that saying they weren't uh, eligible for um, CERB. If they weren't eligible for CERB, they're going to have to repay back a bunch of that. We know that's going to cause some some trouble for governments of all levels. Um, but I think at the time it was still the right thing to do. And I know that Canada, Canadians have spent more, Canadian governments have spent more during the pandemic than any of the other governments per capita in the G7. I think that's a good thing. I think these numbers, these economic numbers in terms of when we're going to be able to bounce back, I hope there's going to be some sort of tie that shows that because the government invested so heavily and spent, you know, a quarter trillion dollars in the last 10 months, um, that we'll be better positioned to come out of it. Um, if not, I mean, what's the worst thing that we did? I mean, we gave money to people who needed it during a global crisis uh, and they survived. So I agree with you, Alvin. I, I think, though, that there's as time goes on, that argument becomes less, um, less strong, less convincing to me. So um, now that we're this far into the pandemic, now that we have some data and the government especially would have much more data than is public about uh, who's getting the money and then hopefully is tracking what they're actually doing with it. And they should be learning from their experience yeah. and they should be tweaking these programs, making them better. And there were some attempts to start to do that. So we saw the government say, we're going to start to, um, you know, basically make the, the wage subsidy program less um, uh, generous and start to sort of roll it back slightly bit by bit. And then they just reversed that in the most recent uh, fall economic statement. So we're looking at spending tens of billions of dollars more on these wage, wage subsidies, subsidies, excuse me, we're looking at spending tens of billions more on these wage, wage subsidies over the next, you know, six months or so. Uh, and I am not convinced that they have done anything to these programs to make sure that they're actually getting uh, some kind of economic uh, and, and jobs value out of them, right? I mean, they, they aren't, they aren't yeah. doing anything to curb companies who are receiving these from uh, giving bonuses to executives, from doing stock, buy, stock buybacks. Other countries have done similar programs, but have much stronger regulations imposed on what businesses can do with the funds that they're getting. Uh, and we haven't seen that from the Canadian government. So I just hope that the liberals in Ottawa are, um, you know, they're going to be stepping up and responding to this uh, information as it becomes public and actually doing something to make sure that this huge amount of money that they're spending is actually going to the places that it's needed because it is needed in so many places. I agree with you 100%, Alexi. They need to absolutely be um, responsive to the data that they're getting and to make sure that the program is run properly. My concern is always around the politics of talking about these types of programs and opposition parties jumping on governments for acting too harshly or too broadly and basically throwing out the baby with the bathwater, right? I mean, there's always going to be bad actors who are trying to take advantage of any government program. We see that in social assistance all the time where there are stories of these people who, you know, take advantage of it, sit on the couch and don't do anything with it. But that's a fraction of a percentage and you end up having governments come in and throwing out the entire program and redesigning it as opposed to just making it better and, uh, you know, tweaking around the edges as they need to. So I hear you. I'm just always worried about what 
the opposition is potentially going to do with the response to these programs because of that. So one last topic today, uh, I want to touch briefly before we leave on long-term care, which is something that Doug Ford committed to addressing after the devastating outbreaks and death we saw in the spring. The province's commission on long-term care, so you'll remember there was a call for an inquiry, the province launched a commission, uh, so a little bit less. I uh, released its second interim letter to Minister Merrill E. Fullerton on Friday with recommendations on how things the province could do to increase the quality of care and long-term care. And so the, um, I'm going to walk you guys through uh, a couple of the things that the commission recommended. First, it ta- I asked the commi- the ministry to better regulate leadership. The letter echoed uh, what we've talked about on uh, previous pods that not nonprofit long-term care homes with clear lines of accountability and leadership at the executive level and specifically with leadership positions focused on quality of care were actually super important and had a meaningful impact in saving lives. The commission seems to be recommending that these positions and this executive structure be mandated across the province, be on site at each home, and have uh, homes be then provided with the resources to help these positions carry out their mandates. Um, The commission doesn't sort of implies, but doesn't sort of come quite out and say that this is largely the case in nonprofit homes and is less the case in for-profit homes. Uh, although they do kind of allude to that, they use a nonprofit home as a good example and a for-profit home as a bad example, which I thought was an interesting um, way that uh, they phrased it. Uh, second, the province should increase the number of performance indicators that long-term care should uh, have to long-term care homes should have to track, and that these should include resident and family satisfaction, and that these should all be publicly reported. None of that is the case right now. Third, and perhaps most importantly, the commission is doing some real work to demonstrate that the government is not doing an effective job of oversight and inspections. And this, I I thought, was the most frustrating and interesting part of the letter. So in 2013, the Liberal government hired 100 inspectors to complete inspections of all 626 long-term care homes each year until 2017. In 2017, the Liberal government then changed to a risk-based approach and the number dropped about in half, Uh, but this allowed the ministry to then allow the inspectors to focus on clearing a complaint backlog. So it was a bit of a different use of resources, same amount of uh, inspecting activity happening, but less of the um, sort of like proactive inspections that the ministry uh, will sometimes launch into things like infection control and uh, disease controls in long-term care homes. However, when Doug Ford took over in 2019, the number of inspections uh, that were proactive seems to have dropped to 27. So you might sort of say this can be expected of a conservative government, but everyone was shocked what we saw in the spring. Well, since March, only 11 homes have received a proactive uh, inspection. So we're actually going to see a continued drop in year, the year 2020 of the number of inspections that are proactive that are happening in long-term care homes. I mean, I'm so shocked. I'm surprised. <laughs> I'm flabbergasted that Doug Ford didn't actually do any of the things he said he was going to. But uh, I mean, didn't he say specifically on this one issue, Chris, that he was going to address it? He's basically committed the province in no uncertain terms to making long-term change in the long-term care sector. And so far, what they've announced have been things like an increase in the capacity of beds, hiring more uh, personal support workers, which is all good. But I think what the commission does a really good job of pointing out is that it's really going to be much more of a systemic cultural change to the whole policy area that will be required to really make change. Um, They have, uh, the commission does a really good job of pointing out 
uh, I think particularly failings in the bureaucracy around long-term care. Um, just two quick examples. The ministry, when there are findings from inspections, the, the ministry usually applies a penalty that's really no more than a slap on the wrist. Their most common forms of uh, response are um, written voluntary, uh, are basically require written and voluntary responses from care homes with no follow-up from the ministry. The ministry has at its disposal director orders, fines, penalties, but it hardly ever uses those tools. Uh, and also, it highlights that inspections have hardly ever revealed lapses in inf- infection prevention, um, which sort of really shows you that the quality of these inspections might not actually be so great because obviously what we saw in the spring demonstrated that there are significant gaps in infection controls in the long-term care sector. So uh, it really said that, you know, our inspection regime around this needs some significant overhaul. Um, And finally, uh, inspections are carried out by three different government entities, Ministry of Labor, Ministry of Long-Term Care, and local public health. And all of these look at different angles of this, and none of them really come together. And that gap actually created some of these oversights. And so, like, you know, it's all well and good to announce beds and to announce personal support, like the system needs resources and they seem to be thinking about resources, but there is really, I think, a much more structural change that needs to happen here if we want to see improvement. And that's something that I think was really interesting that the commission highlighted. So did the commission say where we need to go next? Like what does what does the government need to do? What does the politics around this say right now? So yeah, I think it's interesting because this is actually the commission's second letter and they're going about this in an interesting way. The first letter, the commission urged the province to invest in critical staffing shortages and basically said that staffing shortages were um, a critical need. And I think it's actually overall a good sign that the commission is allowed to and feels empowered to speak to in such uncensored ways about shortages and uh, about needs in the long term. I mean, even going so far to point out the PC government's own failings in it. Um, And we saw the province invest in some limited staffing uh, in the last budget after that commission's uh, second letter or the first letter. And so we'll see what happens after this sort of second letter. Um, But uh, especially one that's so much more focused on the failings of the ministry. But it's really important, I think, the, the urgency the commission sort of speaks with is uh, really says the province does not have time to wait on this. I mean, we're in the midst of the second wave. We're seeing those long-term care. We're seeing COVID creep back into long-term care communities. And what I am, I'm really worried about is that it doesn't seem like we've done anything to address to date what the commission has found. And so, you know, if we're looking at a couple of months until we announce like a review of the ministry, like, you know, this is like a, a long-term change and, you know, the province's long-term care population is immediately imperiled. And that's, I think, what worries me the most. But I think overall, a good thing about th- this commission, you know, there were a lot of folks at the beginning of this that were worrying about, is this commission going to be muzzled? Is it going to be not have a real mandate? And they appear to actually be operating with um, quite a bit of leash, which I think is is uh, speaks well of how they the mandate that they've been given. Except they actually have to do something about it. <laughs> yes, now they have to do something about it, which is uh, uh, we'll see what they actually do. Yeah. Side note, I actually think that like I'm not entirely sure how the minister uh, Marilee Fullerton escapes some of the findings of this. Like if I were her, I would be much more worried about this letter than the last one because you can paint the resource shortages on the liberal government and you're going to clean it up now that you've seen COVID. I think that like 
particularly the finding where inspections have dropped this year post-COVID is pretty damning and speaks to this particular minister's crisis management. So I do wonder if this sort of sets the groundwork for a cabinet shuffle. And and who in the public would be against that? Like, how hard would it have been to be like, okay, we're going to hire another hundred inspectors. And they're going to go out there and they're going to take their time. Like, who would have been like, oh, that's a bad use of money to, you know, yeah. essentially find out all the issues that are happening uh, specifically at uh, these long-term care centers that are the cause of the majority of the deaths uh, that are happening yeah. through COVID. So, you know, get off your ass and do something about it. And that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to Ontario Loud, a podcast about politics and public policy. Ontario Loud is hosted by Sam Andrews, Alexi White, Alvin Tejo, Karima Tower-Kapoor, and I'm Chris Martin. We have an amazing research intern in Harmon Mundy. If you have any thoughts about what you heard, you can get at us on Twitter at OntarioLoud or go to OntarioLoudMail at gmail.com. Ontario Loud is recorded on the traditional territories of many Indigenous nations uh, in Toronto, uh, the traditional territories of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat. We acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. Ontario Loud is also recorded uh, in Vancouver on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, the Squamish, and the Tsleil-Waututh nations. Unceded territory was never given to settlers, it was stolen, and it continues to be occupied and governed by settlers today. So it is important to recognize this history, and even on a podcast where you might be listening somewhere else uh, to acknowledge the, the history of the land that we're on. All right, that's it for us this week. Stay safe, and we'll see you next Tuesday.